Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is the War of Independence Part 13. During the conflict, Cork City and County witnessed some of the most intense fighting. Tom Barry, who would emerge as one of the leading IRA figures in Cork, famously said of the British authorities, they had gone down into the mire to destroy us and our nation, and down after them, we had to go. So over the next two episodes, we will follow the War of Independence into this mire. We begin today in Cork City, before travelling to the Atlantic coast in West Cork. The show then finishes with one of the most bizarre chapters in the entire conflict in East Cork. Additional research for this episode was by the archivist and historian Sam McGrath. Sound was by Jason Looney. Additional narrations are by Aidan Crowe and Therese Murray. And the artwork for the series is by Keith Hines. If you want to delve deeper into the story of the War of Independence, the fourth Q&A with Dr Brian Hanley from the History Department of Trinity College Dublin takes place next weekend, that's June the 6th. Now, Brian is an expert in the War of Independence, so this will be a great chance to answer any questions you might have. These Q&As are exclusively available to patrons of the show at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. You can sign up today at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast and participate in that Q&A. You also get a recording of the Q&A if you can't make it, but that is exclusively available on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com dot com forward slash Irish podcast. Now to the show. In January 1920, the 35-year-old Cork woman, Aidish McCurtain, knew she was facing a difficult year. She was expecting her seventh child and was undoubtedly concerned by the worries any pregnant woman in the early 20th century faced. When the baby arrived, she would have three children under the age of four a dangerous time in the life of any infant, something Ailish and her husband Tomás were only well too aware of. They'd already lost one son, Padraig, to disease in infancy. While concerns and fears for their children 
was enough to keep them awake at night. The War of Independence was putting immense strain on the McCurtains, and the coming year of 1920 would be no different. On January the 15th, Ailish's husband, Thomas, was standing in local government elections, and there was every chance he would not only win a seat, but if he did, he would almost certainly be elected as Lord Mayor of Cork City and become the first Republican to hold the office. Given he was already the commander of the IRA Brigade in the city, this would leave Ailish with most of the responsibility of rearing their young family, although this was something she was well used to. Indeed, she and Thomas had conceived their younger children in between his various spells in prison and time on the run for his political activities. After the 1916 Rising, Thomas had spent seven months in various prisons in England. Released in December 1916, he was only home long enough for Ailish to fall pregnant before he was arrested and imprisoned again in February 1917. Released a few months later in the summer of that year, he was re-arrested in October and served a short spell in jail again. While he spent much of 1918 on the run, the couple nevertheless found time to add to the growing McCurtain family as Ailish fell pregnant and gave birth to a daughter, also called Ailish, in May 1919. As the War of Independence began that year, Thomas was increasingly consumed with his duties as an IRA commander overseeing the development of the Cork No. 1 Brigade, which was emerging as a sophisticated organisation capable of functioning independently of the general headquarters in Dublin. Nevertheless, busy as he was, Ailish fell pregnant late in the year, only a few months after giving birth to their daughter in May of 1919. Given these experiences, Ailish McCurtain would be well able to manage without her husband as he was drawn further and further into the War of Independence, although the dangers that this posed were evident from the earliest days of 1920. The elections he contested took place to the backdrop of increasing IRA attacks. In the preceding weeks before the election, Carrick Tool, Royal Irish Constabulary Barracks in Cork, was attacked and severely damaged by the Cork No. 1 Brigade. When the election took place on January the 15th, it was hardly any surprise that a mass brawl broke out on Grattan Street in Cork on polling day. It began when a group of ex-British Army soldiers attacked Sinn Féin activists, but it quickly escalated when weapons were produced. Now, this was no ordinary street brawl. Guns and even, according to some sources, small grenades were thrown. In what was a sign of the wider situation in Ireland, commentators were somewhat surprised that this proved to be the most serious incident that took place during the local elections that were held in dozens of towns and cities across Ireland that January. Now, the results of these local elections were similar to those of the general election of 1918. They were an emphatic endorsement of candidates who were pro-independence. Sinn Féin, who formed an election pact with the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union, stormed home. They took control of several local governments, including Cork Corporation. Thomas McCurtain took the seat in Blackpool where he had contested the election and as was expected, he was then selected as Lord Mayor of the City Corporation at its first meeting, becoming the first Republican Lord Mayor in the city's history. While McCurtain took the position of Lord Mayor very seriously, he had to devote considerable amounts of time and energy to the IRA as well. As the commander of the Cork No. 1 Brigade, alongside coordinating attacks, he had to spend considerable amounts of time and energy on strategy, which divided IRA activists in the city. 
Tomás McCurtain, along with his close friend, the other leading Republican activist in Cork, Terence McSweeney, had a somewhat romanticised view of warfare. From their perspective, they believed the IRA would ideally launch an insurrection along the lines of the 1916 Rising and favoured more formal military engagements, such as launching attacks on barracks and military installations. Others in Cork, however, harboured no such illusions. This faction, led by a former brigade vice commandant called Sean O'Hegarty, known to his friends as the Joker, argued they should strike at the police wherever and whenever possible, even if some would portray the attacks as dishonourable. These tensions within the IRA had already led to a very serious incident in May 1919 when a bomb factory exploded in Cork. Even though Tomás McCurtain was the brigade commander, the explosion was the first time he was made aware of the factory's existence. It had been created by Sean O'Hegarty in secret. Now, as a result of this, O'Hegarty was demoted. However, he remained a very influential figure, continuing to organise attacks in the city that McCurtain was uncomfortable with, to say the least. For example, the faction around O'Hegarty, known as O'Hegarty's Mob, shot an RIC district inspector on March 10th, severely wounding him. While the police retaliated by badly beating several Sinn Féin politicians in the city, the IRA were undeterred. In the following days, they killed two more constables, one in particularly controversial circumstances. This was the case of Joseph Murta, who was shot dead on Pope's Quay in Cork as he returned from a funeral. This was precisely the type of attack that ran contrary to McCurtain's views of warfare. Despite the fact he disagreed with killings like this, it was to McCurtain's door that the police often arrived. Adish McCurtain would later remember that between 1916 and 1920, the police raided her house at least 20 times, often arresting her husband, Tomás. So it was hardly any surprise that a few hours after Constable Joseph Murta was killed, there was yet another raid on the McCurtain household on March 20th. In the early hours of the morning, there was ferocious banging at the door. Tomás, who was in bed with Ailish, offered to go down, but Ailish, then pregnant, insisted she would go instead. Once she opened the door, it was quickly apparent, however, that this raid was different. Ailish would later remember. When I opened the door, a man rushed in with a black face and with eyes shining like a demon. One man outside the door then asked, where was McCurtain? And I said that he was upstairs. Six men rushed in the hall, four tall men and two small men. The small men were about my own height and carried rifles, which they held against their side. I don't know what the tall men had. They may have had rifles, but I didn't see them. One gave order, hold that one, meaning me. And the second tall man turned round and caught me and shoved me towards the door, but didn't say a word. They immediately went upstairs with the exception of one who stood holding me at the door. The commotion began to wake the household. Instinct kicked in at this point and Ailish thought of her ten-month-old daughter, also called Ailish, who was upstairs asleep in her bedroom. When they were upstairs, the baby that was in our bedroom cried. I called out, You have mothers and I'm a mother for God's sake, let me bring down the baby. The man at the door turned his head and made some noise but didn't reply. This was then followed by the sound of two gunshots. Ailish froze. The baby stopped crying when the shots were fired. Soon afterwards, however, the baby's wail was heard through the house. However, the masked men had shot her husband, Tomás, twice. 
This was not a raid, but an assassination attempt. When the men had reached the top of the stairs, Tomás had come out of their bedroom and met them on the landing in the house, where he had been shot twice. The armed men then began to leave the building, throwing Ailish to the floor on their way down. Upstairs, her brother, who was staying with them at the time, opened the window in the room where he was staying and called for help, but the attackers fired shots at him, forcing him back inside the building. Once they were gone and Ailish went upstairs, the situation was extremely grave. Tomás had been moved to his bed, but was bleeding heavily from the chest. Ailish was under no illusions as to what this meant. Doctors and priests had been called, but she didn't hide the reality from her husband. She said to him, Cheer up, boy. The priest will soon be here. You are dying for Ireland. Die like a soldier. The priest arrived first and gave the devout McCurtain the last rites, but he died from his wounds before the doctor reached the house. Now, on a political level, the implications of what had happened in the McCurtain household were immense. There was no question of who had done this. Tomás McCurtain, the Lord Mayor of Cork City, had been assassinated by Crown forces. This was obvious at the time. There was an RIC barracks up the street from where the McCurtains lived and it was reported that the streets around the house had actually been closed off in the minutes before the attack. Now Ailish herself didn't need any confirmation. A few minutes later British army soldiers turned up at the door and she said as much to them in the words I opened the door and when I opened it I was met with four bayonets to my face. I asked in the name of God what do you want now? I got no answer. And I then said, didn't she tear the heart out of him with bullets? And do you want to get my brother now? As news filtered out around Cork City, the population was stunned. Tomás McCartan was a well-liked individual in the city, aside from his political views. He had even maintained a friendship with Sean O'Hegarty, despite the fact that the two had major differences over what they believed the IRA should be doing. And in terms of his business, he had paid women an equal wage to men, which was something that was highly unusual at the time. Now, while the authorities would infer he had been killed by rivals within the IRA, this was never given any credence and considered just propaganda. Indeed, at the inquest into Tomás McCurtain's death, which opened the following day but lasted weeks, the jury did not equivocate in their verdict. We find that Alderman Thomas McCurtain, Lord Mayor of Cork, died from shock and hemorrhage caused by bullet wounds and that he was willfully wounded under circumstances of the most callous brutality and that the murder was organised and carried out by the RIC officially directed by the British government. We return a verdict of willful murder against David Lloyd George, Prime Minister of England, Lord French, Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, Ian McFerguson, late Chief Secretary of Ireland, Acting Inspector General Smith of the RIC, Divisional Inspector Clayton of the RIC, Detective Inspector Swansea and some unknown members of the RIC. While the Republican movement organised what would be an enormous funeral for Tomás McCurtain, the personal cost on his widow, Ailish, was immense. A family friend, Muriel McSweeney, would remember how the murder of her husband devastated Ailish McCurtain. Mrs McCurtain was pregnant. This killed the babies. The twins. And she'd always wished for twins. The birth came much later. Fortunately in a good nursing home or she would have died. Indeed, it was this friend, 
Muriel McSweeney, who was soon cast centre stage in the War of Independence in Cork City. Her husband, Terence McSweeney, a close friend of Tomás McCurtain, replaced him as Lord Mayor and also commander of the IRA No. 1 Brigade in the city. While the murder of a Lord Mayor was sensational and reported around the world, the second Cork Lord Mayor of that year, Terence McSweeney, would quickly eclipse McCurtain, becoming arguably the most well-known Irish Republican in the world by the year's end. While Terence McSweeney's story will be the focus of next week's episode, the rest of this show looks at the war unfolding across Cork County over the summer of 1920. County Cork is geographically one of the largest in Ireland. Yall in the east is 180 kilometres from Allahees in the west, which overlooks the Atlantic Ocean. Given the sheer size of the county, the IRA in Cork were divided into three brigades. As we've seen, the number one brigade operated in and around Cork City. The number two brigade's zone of operation was the lush farmland in the east and northeast around Yall and Fermoy, while the number three brigade were responsible for IRA actions in the rugged mountainous terrain in the west of the county. This region in particular was ideal for the guerrilla warfare the IRA favoured. Bantry Bay, Dunmanus Bay and then Roaring Water Bay are long narrow inlets that dissect West Cork and this hampered communications in the 1920s, leaving British garrisons isolated and vulnerable to attack. Already in early 1920, the IRA were pushing the Royal Irish Constabulary off one of the peninsulas in the region, the Beira Peninsula. In February, an IRA unit under Tom Hales attacked the police barracks at Allahees, killing one constable. Cut off from the rest of Cork by the Caja Mountains, the authorities knew they could not hold the Beira Peninsula, so withdrew from Allahees and the surrounding region. This, however, was a tactical withdrawal because while they pulled out of Allahees, they began to entrench their position at the base of the Beira Peninsula in the town of Bantry. On June the 2nd, Crown forces in the town were reinforced by the arrival of British Army troops who occupied the local workhouse. Bantry now became the focus of bitter fighting. While the Crown forces in the town were reinforced, they faced an extremely hostile population. IRA records later in the war indicate that there were 203 volunteers in the Bantry Battalion alone. However, this was only the tip of the Republican iceberg. There were also Cumann activists and Sinn Féin activists, not to mention the large numbers of passive supporters. With such a level of support, the IRA were able to continue activities despite the arrival of the additional troops. A week after the army had occupied the local workhouse, they planned an ambush against an RIC patrol outside the town. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Although the intended targets never materialised, a lone constable, Thomas King, appeared on the road. King had recently arrived in the Bantry area, having been transferred from Tipperary, where it was widely believed he had been involved in the murder of four IRA volunteers. Having spotted him, the volunteers outside Bantry now followed him, stopped him, and in the words of Ted O'Sullivan, who was present, We met him in the vicinity of Snave and duly executed him as it was reported that he had taken part in the murder of IRA men at the Rag, County Tipperary. His body was unceremoniously dumped, either on a manure pile or, according to some other accounts, off a cliff. Despite this, the townspeople in Bantry had little sympathy with King. When an inquest to officially determine a cause of death, a key step in any investigation, was called, only three of those summoned to sit on the jury arrived at the court. Despite the fact that jury service at inquests was mandatory, and failure to attend resulted in a 20 shilling fine. Another constable named Brett testified he had delivered the summons to the local people, but this had had little impact. In the following weeks, tensions continued to rise in this small town, as rumours circulated that the police were going to occupy the shops and houses adjacent to the local RIC barracks. This was a security measure, given the IRA had occupied neighbouring buildings during attacks elsewhere, but such a move naturally irritated the people of Bantry. On Tuesday the 22nd of June, 10 days after the murder of Constable Thomas King, five policemen were cycling home after attending a court case when they were ambushed near Bantry. One of the policemen was killed outright. This was Constable Brett, who less than two weeks earlier had issued the summons for the inquest to Constable King. On the evening of this attack, there appears to have been a sense of foreboding, that the RIC were going to take vengeance on the population of the town. Large numbers of constables were seen around the streets and priests in the town were encouraging local people to stay indoors. Nothing happened that evening. However, tensions continued to mount. When an inquest was called for Constable Brett, yet again, only three of those summoned turned up to the courthouse so the inquest could not take place. Further to this, local undertakers also refused to handle his body and he was conveyed to a graveyard, not in a hearse, but a military lorry. Only a few days later, and coming after a month of growing anxiety and tension, large numbers of police arrived in Bantry in advance of a court hearing, which they were required to attend. This didn't bode well in a town where tensions were already on a knife edge. Ultimately, it was a very minor issue that saw Bantry rupture into the long-expected open violence. When the police barracks filled up with the additional constables, the housekeeper left her position, presumably after harassment or intimidation from the IRA. Now, this outraged the police, and they began to make threats that if she did not return, something would be done. She didn't return. Later that night, in the early hours of Friday, the 25th of June, 1920, armed and masked men appeared on the streets of Bantry. Now, there was little doubt as to who these men were. 
They were members of the Crown forces and they began shooting wildly in the street and targeting the houses of local Republicans. Several houses were attacked, while the shop of Dennis O'Mahony, a Sinn Féin activist, was burned down. However, the worst was reserved for the Crowley family, who lived on what was called the Old Barrack Road. The house was inhabited by Kate Crowley, her husband Jeremiah, and their three sons, Cornelius, an invalid, aged 26, the 24-year-old Michael, and the youngest, the 21-year-old Charlie. The younger Crowley brothers, Michael and Charlie, were prominent Republican activists. Michael had recently won a local election for Sinn Féin, while Charlie was the commander of an IRA section in Bantry. After forcing their way into the house, the Crown forces discovered neither Michael nor Charlie, who they were presumably looking for, were at home. They then went upstairs and found Cornelius in bed. An invalid, he had great difficulty even moving, but nevertheless he was shot multiple times and died from his injuries. This naturally led to open contempt for the British authorities and all institutions of government in Bantry at this point. No inquest was held into the death of Cornelius Crowley. The police claimed that when they tried to serve the summons on local people to appear on the jury, they were abused. Life was becoming unbearable in this small town. In the following days, the authorities continued to harass the population. An Irish language teacher was attacked by off-duty policemen and warned to leave. Such were the fears of further attacks against the population that many residents of Bantry were staying with friends and relatives outside the town each evening and returning to work each day. There was no doubt that the attack on the people of Bantry represented a new, unofficial policy. Even the press in Britain recognised this for what it was, a policy of revenge attacks. However, some in Britain viewed this as a positive development. The authorities were getting tough on Sinn Féin as they saw it. A publication in London reported these events. The shooting of policemen has called into existence an association for reprisals and the incidents in Bantry no longer leave any doubt that crude justice will be exacted for every casualty suffered. No attempt is any longer made to hide the fact that what is occurring is a demonstration of the fact that shootings and burning can make a game that two can play. For those living in West Cork in the summer of 1920, there was no end in sight. Indeed, things were only going to get an awful lot worse before they would improve. Nor was this brutal war limited just to Bantry. For example, on Sunday, July 25th, an RIC detective, Sergeant William Mulhern, was shot dead by the IRA as he entered a local Catholic church. Now, this murder provoked widespread condemnation, given it had taken place in the grounds of a church. Even many leading IRA figures considered it a step too far. This precipitated a series of police raids across the region. In the course of these raids, the authorities managed to capture Tom Hales, the commander of the Cork No. 3 Brigade, along with Pat Hart, the brigade quartermaster. And these two men were savagely tortured. Hales lost several teeth to a pliers, while a pincer was used to pull out his fingernails. Neither men broke under the torture. However, Pat Hart never recovered from the ordeal. He was shipped to Pentonville Prison in England, where he went on hunger strike, but the prison authorities force-fed him. As his incarceration continued, he developed what appears to have been severe psychosis, claiming people could read his mind and his thoughts were being repeated. He was still alive at the end of the conflict and was released from Pentonville, but sadly died in an asylum in Ireland, never returning to his home. Indeed, the psychological impact of the war 
was not just taking a toll on combatants, but on the wider population as well. It was hardly any surprise that by the end of June 1920, a leading physician in Limerick told the newspaper, the Munster News, that he had seen a dramatic increase in what he called nervous complaints among his patients. Nervous complaints, or what we would call mental illness, was clearly resulting from the war and the strains and stresses people were being placed under. While this savagery was being played out in West Cork, in the east of the county, one of the more bizarre incidents of the entire war was unfolding, one marked by unexpected humanity. Three days after the invalid Cornelius Crowley had been shot in his bed in Bantry, nearly 180 kilometres away, on the far side of Cork County, hundreds of soldiers poured out of the barracks in Fermoy and proceeded to attack shops and houses in the town. This was not the first time this had happened. As we saw in episode 7, it had been the first place to experience a revenge attack on a large scale when soldiers had rioted in the town back in September 1919 after Private William Jones had been killed. Nine months later, on June 28, 1920, the townspeople were subjected to an almost identical attack. The Irish Independent reported, At midnight on Sunday, 400 soldiers practically wrecked for Moy. Windows were broken, goods scattered on the streets and thousands of pounds worth of property was either destroyed or looted. In one street alone, 35 plate glass windows were shattered. This is the second outbreak of the kind in Fermoy, the first being that of September 8th last, when many premises were wrecked by the military as revenge for the shooting of Private Jones. Now, this attack had resulted from one of the most strange chapters in the war. Through June, the Cork No. 2 Brigade, led by Liam Lynch, had drawn up plans to kidnap the commanding officer of the Fermoy garrison, Brigadier General Cuthbert Lucas. Alongside the propaganda victory of such a move, the IRA planned to exchange Lucas for IRA prisoners being held in jails in Ireland and Britain. After learning Lucas was planning to spend Saturday, June the 27th, fishing on the Blackwater River near Fermoy, Liam Lynch led several volunteers in two cars to kidnap the general. However, when they reached the riverbank, they discovered Lucas had been joined by two others. Nevertheless, they pushed ahead with the plan. Colonel Danford and Brigadier General Lucas were placed in one car with Liam Lynch and two other IRA volunteers, while the third captive, Colonel Terrell, was placed in another. As they left the scene, the two cars became separated, and at that moment, General Lucas and Colonel Danford, both having served in the Middle East, began talking to each other in a strange language the IRA volunteers had never heard before. One volunteer, George Power, recalled what happened next. Lucas and Danford held a brief conversation in a strange language, subsequently discovered to be Arabic. And at a prearranged signal between them, they sprang simultaneously on Lynch and Clancy. The attack was so sudden that the IRA officers were at first taken at a disadvantage and almost disarmed, before they realised what had happened. In the melee, the driver lost control of the car, crashed into the ditch and rendered himself unconscious. It was therefore an even fight between two British and two IRA officers. The struggle between Lynch and Lucas was particularly severe, as both were strong-built, well-trained men, about six feet in height. In the first onslaught, Lucas had got on top of Lynch, making frantic efforts to wrench the gun away from him, and had all but succeeded, but when the door of the car, it gave way. They both rolled out onto the roadway, still struggling, until finally Lynch wore down his opponent and the general shouted, I surrender. 
Beside them, Colonel Danford had gained the upper hand in his struggle with the IRA volunteer Paddy Clancy. George Power continues the story. He had almost succeeded in throttling the IRA officers when Lynch, turning around, took in the situation at a glance, shouted to the British officer, Surrender or I shoot. But Danford ignored the command and maintained his grip on Clancy's throat, whereupon Lynch fired and hit Danford in the face, making him collapse over his opponent. By this point, the second car, having realised they were no longer being followed by the other car, realised something was wrong and had returned to the scene. On the roadside, they found Liam Lynch and the other IRA volunteers discussing what they should do next. Things were not going according to plan. Nevertheless, they decided to press ahead with the original idea of just kidnapping Lucas. From this point on, the whole affair was marked by a level of humanity unimaginable in West Cork that summer. Looking at Colonel Danford, who was seriously wounded, they left the unharmed Colonel Terrell to look after his fellow officer. This saved his life, and despite being shot in the head, Danford made a near full recovery. Meanwhile, they put Lucas back into one of the cars and took him into captivity. While his soldiers rioted in the town of Fermoy that night, Lucas himself emerged as a strange character. He was taken from County Cork, first into Limerick, and would eventually be brought as far north as County Clare, where Lucas and his captors developed a strange mutual respect for each other. By all accounts, Lucas was an affable character with an insatiable thirst for whiskey. According to Michael Brennan, the commander of the East Clare Brigade, tasked with guarding Lucas, they had to buy him a bottle of whiskey every day. His guards passed the time playing cards and games with the Brigadier General. Joseph Good, one of the IRA guards, recalled his time with Lucas. We used to play tennis. I remember on one occasion I had to request Lucas to cease playing and withdraw to a clump of trees as we could be seen from passing by military lorries and he might be recognised. General Lucas did some fishing on the Shannon, but he caught nothing. Lucas would even go on to save the life of this IRA volunteer, Joseph Good. On one occasion, he saved me from a ducking or worse. I was being swept towards the weir on Castle Connell, when I was alone in a punt. I could not control my punt, and Lucas jumped into the punt and towed me ashore. Lucas might have availed of the opportunity to escape. Lucas was very frank. He told me that if he was released or exchanged for our men in British custody, he would not again take service in Ireland. The East Clare Brigade, however, were growing increasingly tired of looking after the Brigadier General, as the IRA headquarters were uncertain what to do with him, as negotiations with the British authorities stalled. Guarding him took up the brigade's resources, so eventually, on July the 30th, they decided they would rid themselves of Brigadier General Lucas. Michael Brennan, the IRA commander, recalled how they brought the bizarre affair to a close. We always had left a man on duty outside his bedroom window at night, and the room was on top of the ground floor, so we withdrew this man. At first, nothing happened. He may have suspected a trap. But when we got up on the second morning, our prisoner was gone. While the press would claim Lucas had made a remarkable escape, the Brigadier General, for his part, refused to identify any of those who had been involved in his kidnap or the houses where he had been kept, stating that during his detention, I was treated like a gentleman. By gentlemen. This entire episode stands out because in that summer of 1920, the conflict in Cork was marked by ever-increasing brutality. 
In the next episode, we will remain in Cork because Tomás McCartan's successor as Lord Mayor of Cork, Terence McSweeney, would dominate the conflict, gaining international attention in the autumn of 1920. That's the next episode, which is out the week after next. Next week, we have the Q&A for patrons at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. Until then, Sloan. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.